Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. Over the last couple months, my daughters have become obsessed with the movie Moana. They probably watch it three times a week and watch YouTube videos of its soundtrack daily. They know most of the songs by heart, and as a result, so now do my wife and I. It's a great movie, but I think shortly after the first time I watched it, I realized just how little I knew about Polynesian culture and tradition. I knew about the long pause. That's what anthropologists and archaeologists call the roughly 2,000-year period when exploration of the Pacific Islands came to a stop. This, in fact, is alluded to in the plot of the movie. It's the source of uh, Moana's personal story arc. The consensus now, by the way, is that that period was due to shifts in El Nino, which made long-distance sailing far more difficult for those hundreds of years, uh, and after the pause ended, Polynesian expansion exploded. I think I was vaguely aware that Maui had been a kind of a folk hero shared among the disparate Polynesian cultures, but I didn't know much else. So it occurred to me I should try to find some kind of an expert to ask. And that proved to be easier said than done. There's a lot of good, highly qualified experts on ancient Polynesian culture, uh, but most of them seem to be white college professors. I don't have a problem with white college professors, but I really wanted someone who lived the experience. And that's when I stumbled upon a book called The Forgotten Children of Maui, and its author, Lane Wilkin. Lane is a scholar, cultural tattoo practitioner, and advocate for the critically endangered practice of batok, or cultural tattoos of the Philippines. He's also studied other related indigenous traditions of the Philippines and Greater Pacific with nearly three decades of research and experience. Lane's the author of Filipino Tattoos, Ancient to Modern, and The Forgotten Children of Maui. He's also a contributing writer to Back from the Crocodile's Belly, Philippine Babalan Studies and the Struggle for Indigenous Memory, and Shamanic Transformations, True Stories of the Moment of Awakening, as well as several articles from various magazines and journals, and I'm thrilled to welcome him to the show today. I'm John Brooks. This is Hard to Believe. If I can just start with this, uh, I would love for you to, I've, I've done a little bit of research into your personal background. I find your, your life story pretty interesting. Um, if you could just start with that, I, 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 where you grew up, how you came to be where you are today, um, your, your cultural background, your interest in your own cultural past. Um, so my father met my mother when he was stationed in the Philippines. Um, this was in the 60s. And I, uh, I was born shortly after and uh, uh, spent the first six years of my life in Northern California. And um, my dad was associated with a notorious motorcycle gang that uh, shall remain unnamed. And uh, they actually like to recruit out of the military. And so when... He was in the Air Force and uh, stationed over there at Travis Air Force Base and, you know, got recruited into this gang. And uh, when I was about six years old, he kind of figured out that he couldn't have that lifestyle and uh, have a family. And so you weren't allowed to really quit, but you could move. And so he uprooted us, moved us to this little tiny farming community on the border of Idaho and Utah. And... Um, we lived there for about five years. Uh, after about five years, everyone he knew uh, from the Sacramento chapter of that organization was either dead or in prison. And we moved to Southern California and uh, he never spoke of it again. But it uh, created a lot of um, cultural insecurity for me living in 
uh, northern Utah in a all Mormon community and all white community. And uh, you know, we endured a lot of persecution. This was in the mid 70s when uh, there was still, I mean, there still is a lot of racism, but it was, you know, not as covert. <laughs> and uh, so by the time we moved back to Southern California, I, uh, I really didn't want to participate in Filipino culture. And then when I was 19, I moved to Hawaii. And that changed my perspective quite a bit. I, um, I recognized something in Hawaiian culture that we had in fragments in the Philippines. And that kind of led, led me down the rabbit hole of wanting to explore uh, not only that this cultural connection between us, you know, because at the time I didn't know that uh, Hawaiians and Filipinos were related. Um, geographically, we're regulated in the Philippines to Southeast Asia, but our culture is not Asian. It is uh, more akin to the rest of the Pacific and uh, linguistically, culturally, and uh, even our spiritual practices and belief systems, we can trace back to common ancestors, what you would normally call a God or gods. Um, and so a lot of my research has been to explain that and to understand that, to, to develop a more than a superficial comprehension of what these belief systems were about. And uh, then I, I um, you know, just started collecting information on my own. Uh, tattooing was one of those aspects, but really to understand the ancient tattooing of the Philippines, you have to understand the culture that, they, that it came from. And unfortunately, the modern Filipino culture is not necessarily representative of, of that anymore. Uh, due to colonization and Christianization. And so I had to learn about the ancient culture to understand the tattoos. And uh, because the tattoos really represent kind of the totality of the belief system and practices of the ancient Philippines, which again, as I mentioned, are akin to what you find in the rest of the Pacific, you know, Samoan, Hawaiian, Tongan, Maori, um, all these people actually trace their genealogies back to the same gods, if you will, if not, uh, you know, what, which are actually deified ancestors. And uh, Maui is one of those gods or demigods or ancestors. And so it's been a wonderful journey for me to explore all of that. And, uh, so that's kind of my history in a couple of minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty thorough. Um, I I saw you say one time that you ended up in Hawaii as a Mormon missionary. Um, yes. yes. What 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 was or is your <laughs> you're laughing? What was or is your relationship to Mormonism? Well, I am uh, quite divorced from the Mormon Church. Okay. Um, at the time, I was you know I was there as a Mormon missionary, but was feeling, was having all these spiritual experiences in Hawaiian culture. And, uh, you know, that kind of, you could, because Mormonism is very exclusive. It, they have, they're almost xenophobic uh, in their relationship with people of other faiths. And as a missionary, I encountered people of all kinds of faiths, Christian and non-Christian alike, especially in Hawaii, where you have quite a bit of Asians. And, uh, it just opened my eyes uh, to think a little more broadly in terms of spirituality. And, and uh, I took some classes on comparative religion when I was in college. Uh, and you see a lot of common threads throughout a lot of belief systems throughout the world. And that was intriguing to me as well. So for a while, um, I was interpreting everything that I learned about uh, ancient Pacific Islander culture, including the Philippines, through that lens of Mormonism. But uh, to put it kindly, I have outgrown that. Which came first, the move to Utah or the Mormonism? Like, did you did your family oh. adopt Mormonism when you were there? No, no. My my dad was the anomaly in that particular motor motorcycle gang. He was. A Mormon who ran with bikers, and <laughs> his name his name in the club was the preacher, because he was clean cut and uh, always encouraged them to do good things. But 
you know, with, with that particular organization, you, uh, you have to participate. And so, yeah, um, on my dad's side, we were, I would be a ninth generation Mormon, long time Mormon. Wow. My, uh, my mom was a convert. And, uh, so it's, it's been an interesting journey. (laughs) A lot of people uh, see Mormonism as, uh, cult-like, um, or cult light. (laughs) (laughs) There are, there are certainly aspects of it that are very culty, but, uh, yeah, just navigating through all of that and, and trying to reconcile that belief system with others, you find discrepancies, you find, uh, things that just don't add up and you can either do mental gymnastics around it, or you can realize that, you know, it has its failings. So you say when you took comparative religion classes when you were in college that you noticed some similarities between other religions and, and some some commonalities. Um, I want to talk a little bit more specifically about that in relation to Maui with you um, sure. momentarily. But uh, before that, what what are some of those things? What what in your own discovery, like what sort of what were some of the aha moments for you, or like the when you started connecting those dots among different different traditions? Well. Savior traditions are interesting. I mean, you have that with Zoroastrianism. You have that uh, in a lot of different faiths. And then principles of sacrifice, um, forms of communication with with the divine. Um, A lot of the time there's commonalities there. Virgin births are are found in many different traditions. Um, Zoroaster would be one of them. there's just there's just a lot of underlying threads, and then uh, delving into just uh, Hebrew culture and history to give context to what I was reading in the Bible, um, that was also very enlightening as well because you see that uh, there are aspects of Judaism that in their holy writ there there are veiled allusions to polytheism. Oh sure. And, and unveiled. Uh, yeah, I mean it's you know, yeah. I mean it's it's pretty explicit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's very explicit, you know. Like, <laughs> like, like in the book of Jeremiah and they talk about the queen of heaven. You sure. know, and that the Jews were worshiping the queen of heaven or Asherah, the Asherah, right. Yeah. So, you know, just just things like that and then you find, you know, some of these principles in other faiths and spiritual practices and mm-hmm. um and so for me, uh, with Mormonism, there it was a kind of a easier jump to the indigenous practices of my my Filipino side because in the indigenous practices of the Philippines, there's a very heavy emphasis on maintaining a relationship with those that predecease you. Um, that is a, a less talked about uh, aspect of Mormonism. Um, Saint veneration that you find in Catholicism and the Philippines is largely a Catholic country. uh, That's very akin to the indigenous belief system of, of ancient Filipinos as well, where except we would have them as uh, patron ancestors who you would invoke. So it's just uh, you, the Philippines was actually very ripe for Catholicism um, when the Spaniards came over there because it was, their, their belief system was had a lot of commonalities. And it's just, oh, these are different names for different deities, right? And, okay, yeah, we'll adopt your system so, <laughs> in some places. Other places were very uh, opposed to adopting something new, especially when the Spaniards were asking for their gold. So <laughs> <laughs> the friars would go up into the mountains and return without their heads. So, so the Forgotten Children of Maui is... When, when so you kind of went on a a journey to to see all of the various uh, areas of of Austronesia um, that the Maui story had touched, right? Mm-hmm. So full disclosure, I mean, like most people, until Moana came out, um, I thought Maui was where people go on vacation in Hawaii, right? Like, right. And and I've, I'm a I have a degree in religious studies, right? Like, so I've I, I probably know more you know, demigods and ancestor stories than your average person. And, and even I was, you know, I was, I was ignorant uh, to, to the broader Maui story. What you seem to have done is, is taken it and, and shown the way that this one particular character, this, this sort of folk hero 
mm-hmm. unites and also preserves kind of the history of a whole range of um, island nations that that are in the Pacific, yeah. um, which I think is a is a is a fascinating discovery and 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 um, the the way that you. Uh, you, the discipline that you take in finding overlapping stories and trying to look at things side by side is very interesting. So, you know, for those of us that now know that Maui is a is a uh, demigod or ancestor figure or folk figure because of Moana, and, and that that's become uh, more part of the popular imagination. Um, right. Tell us about this character and why this character is so ubiquitous uh, among all these different traditions and like what it is about the story of Maui, Maui or the figure of Maui that is so um, kind of unifying. Well, Maui, Maui encompasses a lot of different themes. And one of them is the, our maritime tradition in the, in the Pacific. And, you know, he was an, a famous navigator. So the, all the stuff about that you learn about him in Moana is very superficial. Mm. And, uh, but he was an ancient uh, progenitor that was a, a famous navigator. And the whole fishing up islands with the magic fish hook, that's Disney. That's, uh, that's the superficial <laughs> understanding of, of his tradition. But his name, if you understand what his name means in the Philippines, you have quite a, bit, a deeper understanding because his name in the Philippines is Lumawig. And, Polynesian languages tend to drop that final consonant on all words. And so, you know, if you break it down, Lumawi or just Maui is what they call him. But his name implies a few different things. It's taken from the root word Lawig. Lawig is, it can mean fishhook in some areas of the Philippines. It can mean hawk. It can also mean to, to voyage or to sail, uh, depending on the region. And so you saw Moana, you know, he carries around this big fish hook, he turns into a giant hawk, he teaches Moana how to sail, you know, and you don't, you don't know that those are aspects of just his name, which is probably just a sorbicate. And um, because in the, in the Pacific, it was, it's considered rude to call someone by their first name, especially uh, since the, your name conveys or, or has a tether to your, your personal power of mana. Mana is something that was very guarded. And so often people didn't, unless you were talking among close, intimate friends or family, your given name wasn't used. You would be called by a nickname. And currently Filipinos still do that. Everybody's got a nickname. You know, nobody calls each other by their first name. And a lot of people don't even understand why. They just, you know, it's just the way we do things. But it goes back to that concept of mana. You don't want to share mana with somebody who, might take advantage of that situation. Like with my mother growing, when she was growing up, uh, my grandfather told her, forbade her to tell her suitors her given name. So she went by a nickname instead because he did not want them to have any kind of supernatural power over her. And so that goes all the way back. So if you understand that these these names of these deities are actually sorbicates, um, then you might think, oh, you know, oh, this one particular island doesn't have a tradition of Maui, but they actually do. He's, it's just under a different sorbicate. Tracing everything back, you have this overlying theme of, of navigation and maritime tradition, which in the ancient Austronesian culture, being a, a navigator was sometimes considered higher than a chief. They embodied tremendous mana. Navigators were sought after as uh, to add to bloodlines. Even um, people would offer themselves to the navigator to get some of that mana infused into their community. And uh, again, Maui was the most famous navigator. In fact, uh, navigators that came after him, and this is specifically in uh, French Polynesia, navigators and prophets were given the title of Maui because of their ability. The navigator, because he could see beyond the horizon, so to speak, and find these distant islands. And then the prophets also saw beyond the horizon, so to speak. Sometimes there's conflicting stories of Maui throughout the Pacific, but if you realize that sometimes that's a titled Maui rather than the ancestor, Hmm. uh, then you can kind of sort things out. And then the other aspect that I think is very intriguing about Maui is the 
the common storyline that he was lost or abandoned by his parents and then he finds his way back home. And I think that for a lot of people that reuniting with family, reuniting with your ancestry, that theme is very appealing to a lot of people, especially for um, Pacific Islanders that are in the diaspora, you know, spread spread around the world, you know, that longing for home. Uh, to be reunited with your family is is a very powerful theme. And so I think that it, there's appeal to his story on many different levels. But for us, those are the those are the aspects of his uh, his stories that really appeal to Austronesian people. I, I wonder if one of the things that stuck out to me in in reading some of your book and uh, and, and doing some research on on Maui uh, and and various uh, cultural stories about him, one of the things that stuck out to me is that he. Uh, carries with him sort of two traits that we see quite a bit in mythology um, of various cultures. Um, one is that he's a what's called a trickster, yeah. and, and tricksters tend to be very, very popular among sort of the common folk, right? I think of some like mm-hmm. a, a figure like Ntomi or Asu in, in Yoruba culture, and also that he's a fire thief, uh, which is also another sort of common thread among mythology. Right. Um, that there's the hero who steals fire, uh, you know, and you, I think of Prometheus in, in the Greek tradition, yeah. and, and Prometheus is a, a sort of a savior figure. So, so, so Maui is, if I got this right, in most in most cases, in sort of most of his deification, is a, a fire thief. That's part of his mm-hmm. sort of foundational story. Is there anything else that you came across in some of the common? Uh, stories of Maui that cross different cultures that echo other great, you know, founding or kind of savior figures in different in different religions and cultures. The trickster aspect is is found in a lot of places um, throughout the Pacific, but uh, as a savior, uh, one of the stories is that he is a failed savior <laughs> uh, because he tries to win immortality for humanity. And he fails at it, at least in, in some of the Polynesian traditions. In, in the southern Philippines, he actually achieves immortality, but it's only for those who follow him. <laughs> ah, interesting. So getting back to your, uh, your, your point about Catholicism. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, there are, that's, that's one of the things where you, you can find commonalities, but then you're also interpreting them from a different lens. Um, a non-Austronesian lens, you're going to, yeah, oh, he, he's akin to Prometheus. But, uh, you know, motivations uh, for some of the, the feats or, you know, things that he accomplishes are, are sometimes selfish and sometimes they're magnanimous. So it's, it's really hard to say <laughs> sometimes that in the Philippines, he is the fire bringer. He's, he, he brings fire to humanity. Um, but he's also a trickster in uh, he turns his brother-in-law into stone because he's rude to him, you know, <laughs> things like that. Uh, Maori's same thing that uh, they turn, he turns his brother-in-law or, or this guy who's trying to court his wife or sister, he turns him into a dog. Um, or uh, uh, in Hawaii, he actually turns a guy named Moi Moi into a dog, uh, a stone, uh, just like in the Philippines. And, uh, and it's usually done because he's he's been mocked. <laughs> it's it's nothing magnanimous about it. It's like you've insulted me. So here you go. Uh, but in terms of a, as a fire bringer, yeah, it's to it's to better humanity. But for us in the in the Pacific, um, a lot of those euphemisms and metaphors that we find in our oral traditions are are just simply that they're euphemisms that we no longer use or understand. So they take on this supernatural aspect Um, that, you know, that discussion about him bringing fire to humanity is really about the procreative act Uh, because there's a lot of use in our rituals in terms of fire when it comes to uh, conception, pregnancy and giving birth. We use fire for all that. And right. so when you come across something, so-and-so put so-and-so by the fire, that means they got busy. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
Well, there's certainly, I, I've always found it fascinating because, you know, if you, if you talk to modern anthropologists or, or evolutionary biologists, they, they, it's, it's the moment that human beings started cooking our food. Uh, the, the moment that we uh, went from hunter gatherer um, eating raw food to figuring out the process of cooking it is what really kickstarted human evolution. Uh, and, and there yeah. seems to be a, 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 just a hint of a remembered um, tradition in, in those fire stories as well, that there's a recognition somehow of these different cultures that, um, that fire is essential to, yeah. to progress uh, in some, you know, real, real way. Exactly. You can, you can interpret the oral traditions from a, from a number of different paradigms. You know, you can see it as sex, you can see it as knowledge and wisdom um, Maui, uh, the little Maui and Moana that's on his chest is pushing up the heavens. Mm. Uh, that's what he's depicted doing. And, and that's a feat ascribed to Maui as well as some of, some of his progenitors. And I discovered the meaning of that, uh, metaphor kind of by accident. I was, uh, reading a book about one of the traditional navigators of the island of Sotawal in the Caroline Islands in Micronesia. And it's it's a nautical term to lift the heavens. It means to go beyond the horizon, beyond what you can see. So that you might have your, your own geographical boundaries of that, of your particular community, but someone who goes beyond those geographical boundaries, uh, in effect, broadens the, the sphere of the heavens, broadens the horizon, lifts up the, the, the heavens and brings in more light and knowledge. So you could also see the, the fire metaphor from that standpoint, too. Is it brings an expansion of real reality, an expansion of, of understanding. And we, we still talk about that um, figuratively and saying, you know, knowledge is light. Right. And, uh, and light and knowledge seem to be synonymous sometimes. So he is definitely a light breather, mm. you know, in a way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your process of uncovering these stories. Um, so one of the things that I, I grew up in, um, I, was actually, I was born in the UK. I, I grew up in northeast of the US. So I always kind of took for granted the uh, sort of European approach to history that um, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. Right? You know, and, yeah. and, and, there, and certainly there's a lot of that to, to go back to. And, and so what I first, I lived in the Pacific Northwest for um, a little while uh, in my late teens, early twenties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was there, I came to realize that my conception of history was, was very um, not even just in terms of the events of history, but the way that history is done was, was very kind of narrow that, that, uh, you know, there isn't that much history in Seattle <laughs> beyond mm-hmm. the 19th century, right? Um, whereas I would grew up in places that were, you know, from the 16, 1700s, whatever. And 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 a lot of the history of that region is is native history. And and the way that you go about doing native history, I came to realize, is very very different because yeah. you do have to rely so much on oral tradition and um and and what of that tradition remains and how it's been shaped over time and. But it is doable, um, obviously. Uh, your process in writing this particular book how did how did you do it? What like who did you go to? Where where were your sources? Where did you travel? Well, obviously, I went back to the Philippines, and um, and then I've also interviewed numerous elders from around the Pacific, as well as looking at what what has been recorded by early ethnographers and and historians. But I approach my approach is kind of like the way uh, a linguist approaches, you know, reconstructing a parent language. With linguistics, you're looking at all the daughter uh, expressions of a particular language family, and then you can reconstruct the parent language based on how all those daughter languages use similar words or cognates of particular words and the meanings associated with them. And so you can rebuild a parent language. And that's what I've had, unfortunately, you know, since there is nobody, you know, from those ancient times to tell us, there's no written record that we know of. Uh, we're, looking at, we're looking at all the, the fragments that are left behind. I, I look at the Pacific as we all have pieces of the same puzzle. And by putting all those pieces together, we can find the commonalities and we can explore them. We can, we can reconstruct 
what our what the actual narrative was. And so I've done that with Maui is like looked at all the cousins, so to speak, and kind of rebuilt things from there, looked for the commonalities rather than the differences. And that was kind of hard for me to to wrap my brain around at first, because in, in Western culture, we're taught to think critically, you know, take something apart and try and understand the pieces. Whereas in a lot of indigenous cultures, you're looking at things holistically. You're looking for the relationships rather than the differences. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very helpful to make that shift so that I could see things from a more holistic standpoint rather than a divisive one. That's basically how my process works. I, I collect all the information. I look for commonalities. It doesn't seem so hard now. <laughs> <laughs> did, did it change the way you see yourself? Um, did, you, did you see yourself as beyond simply the ethnic makeup of your parents, uh, your, your Filipino makeup? Did you see yourself... Did, was your connection, for instance, to Hawaii, which you we, you've talked about being something that you got off the plane and were like, I you know I recognize this place, right? Like the first time, yeah. did this change your own sort of personal view of your own you know essence in any way? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, just um, so when I was in Hawaii, everything felt familiar for some reason. I just couldn't put my finger on it. I had no idea, and. Um, understanding that I belong to something far bigger than the Philippines, far older than uh, what we normally think of as history, that there's something very deep there. Uh, that gave me a lot of, I guess, a cultural sense of self-worth uh, that I didn't have before. I mean, if you, you talk to you know, modern Filipinos, it's like, oh, what is it about being Filipino? And people will say things like, oh, you know, we eat lumpia and panse, and actually those are Chinese. Um, <laughs> you know, what, what is there to be proud of? Oh, mani pakiao, you know, or we, we can grow, you know, coconuts. We make uh, really good uh, liquor over there. <laughs> I wanted something deeper. Yeah. I wanted to know really who I came from. In my, my European side, I mean, that's well documented. You know, I can go back to England. I can go back to uh, Norway and Denmark. Um, and those are very well documented histories. But this was something new. And it certainly helped me with my own internalized racism towards my my mother's side of the family. Because, you know, to put it bluntly, we were we were crapped on uh, in the in the mid 70s by white people. And. Yeah always felt excluded, always felt othered. And this was a sense of tremendous self, uh, self-pride and, and self-worth with, it, with our culture uh, that really inspired me, helped me to re-embrace who I was. It was very healing for me, actually. And you know, I, you know, in the process of writing that book, uh, The Forgotten Children of Maui, you know, I got uh, one of his tattoos. I actually have several of his tattoos now. Um, <laughs> I, um, I named my, one of my sons after him. Uh, yeah, we just kind of went full bore with that. And, you know, the reason I do these uh, lectures, podcasts, or, or, you know, guest speak at universities is because I want to instill that sense of cultural self-pride in other people from the Pacific, um, as well as to help other people that are outside of the Pacific have a deeper appreciation for the traditions that they see there, you know, people go over to Hawaii, for example, and they're like, Oh, hula hula. And, you know, teriyaki (laughs) beef. And, you know, they they get this very glazed over, you know, cartoonish almost uh, interpretation of the culture. Right. When there's so much more there to really appreciate. So I, on the other side of it, then, I, since you bring it up, I, I, I'm now curious about this. So you're also half white people, right? Like, that's your other half. So yeah. um, how has your relationship to that side of yourself changed or, or, or been informed? Like, do, you, do you struggle with that more? Or, yeah. or, or Not so much. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, you're part colonizer. You know, right. shame on you. I'm like, I can't control who gave birth to me. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, you know, it was it was really interesting uh, being over there in Hawaii as a missionary. I, I, uh, I think that was really fortuitous 
you know, I was sent there because you really don't get a choice when you apply to be a missionary. You, you pay out of your own pocket and they choose where you go. And wow. I was just lucky enough to be sent there <laughs> and, you know, had my my uh, horizon broadened. The sky was lifted, so to speak. But when, when I was over there, I I experienced, uh, you know, here in the, here on the mainland, you get a lot of discrimination sometimes because you're non-white in certain communities. Over there, you have brown privilege. Right. Rather <laughs> than white privilege here. You have brown privilege. And I came back very, you know, brown power when I, uh, when I came back to the mainland and, you know, was kind of hateful to, and resentful towards my, my white lineage. But as, you know, it's just the pendulum swinging back and forth. Eventually, you find homeostasis, right? Mm. And so I, I really appreciate my, my roots from my European side now, too, because I've explored uh, that culture as well, uh, especially the Scandinavian side, you know, which isn't as, I guess, promoted as, as English right. here in the States. Because it was settled, it was a former former colony of of England, etc. And so the history of the United States is, is actually told from a very, um, I would say, British centric point of view. But uh, I delved into the Scandinavian, uh, my Scandinavian roots, because my brother in law was asking me for Polynesian tattoos, and I said, you know, you're not Polynesian. Um, why don't we explore what you had in your culture? Because at that point in time. I realized that most cultures in the world uh, had some form of body marking at one time or another. Yeah, and speaking of like seafaring tattooists, I mean, like, you know, the Scandinavians, yeah. Yeah, they went, they went all over the place, and there's even allusions that they were probably in the Pacific as well because there's, wow. there's a discussion of a race of red-haired or blonde-haired people that, that were in the Pacific. Uh, the Hawaiians called them ehu, um, or in Maori they call them torehu. They, uh, anyone that is born with reddish hair or dusky blonde hair is considered a descendant of one of the primordial gods or ancestors, uh, Tangaroa or Tangaloa or Angalo in the Philippines. Um, and then there's aspects of the culture in the Pacific that are very similar to what you'd find in Scandinavia. And there's even some some of the uh, runic symbols and sigils that you find in Scandinavia that are found as tattoos in our islands. Interesting. So it's, it's really interesting. There, we're that's a that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might have to have you back <laughs> talk about that. That's uh... but I found you know common tattoos even with the Croatian people, uh, and they they write these these tattoos off as Christian tattoos, but they're probably much older than that because they're found as as sigils in Scandinavia, they're found as tattoos in the Pacific. And so, yeah, there's probably something even, you know, there's some, either diffusion or, or something along that line that uh, is deeper. But I, uh, I, in doing the research for my brother-in-law to find a, you know, a Scandinavian tattoo, um, I came to appreciate my own and had a, had a really good experience doing that. Um, at the time, all my children had middle names that were old school uh, Austronesian Filipino type of names, you know. Uh, like like I mentioned earlier, one of my sons is named after Maui. His name is Lumawi Gani, uh, which is a combination of Lumawi and Isagani, who's the name. That's the name of one of my uncles. Anyway, um, I had honored my Filipino side very heavily. I'd honored my English side very heavily because they all have English first names uh, for the most part. <laughs> Right. I felt when I was doing the research for my brother-in-law that my Scandinavian ancestors were pissed at me because I had not honored them. And so I, uh, I kind of said out loud, um, okay, if I have another child, I will honor you folks with them. I just need to find a name. So, you know, like a, like a good Mormon back then, I, you know, we got pregnant, you know, cause Mormons have big families and, uh, and I, I said, okay, I got to make good on this promise to my ancestors. And so we're going through my genealogy and my wife doesn't like any of the names. She doesn't like Ludwig. She don't like Johan. She don't like Olaf. So <laughs> one day we're driving along in the car and I feel this chill go from the top of my head down to down my spine and this name pops into my head. Name him Odenleif. And I'm like, whoa, that's a loaded name. 
And I told my wife, Rebecca, about it. She goes, and she starts tearing up. She goes, that's the name. And, you know, we're both having chills. We start, we start weeping, you know, okay, very emotional uh, response to this. So um, our next son is named uh, uh, Liam Noble Odenleif Wilkin. That kid came out blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> I guess my ancestors are pleased, you know, that I, <laughs> I had honored them. So, you know, I've had I've had good experiences on that side of my ancestry, too. And I just feel like uh, I have to have a balance. Uh, obviously, most of my practice and work is is focused on the on the Filipino side. But I do honor my my European ancestry as well. So I want to I want to talk about the tattooing then um, and, and sort of your journey into into that. So you sort of reintroduced the idea of. Yeah. Um, is it tap tattoo? Is that hand tapping, hand tap tattooing, I guess. Ritual tattooing. Okay. And so what got you into that? What, when did you start? Like, what was the, what's the trajectory of that element of your story? And, 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 you know, the, the idea of like finding people who, um, for whom the tattoos are appropriate and who are willing to go through what, Seems to be like a pretty painful experience. I don't, I, you know, I've I've never gotten a tattoo, so um, I'm 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 very uh, uh-huh. <laughs> I'm very skittish about that sort of thing. Uh, understandably so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can you talk about sort of how you got from point A to point B with the with the tattooing element? Sure. So again, it starts with me being a missionary in Hawaii. Sure. And <laughs> I, uh, you know. The Hawaiians were probably just barely starting into their uh, cultural renaissance when it, in regards to tattooing at that point. Uh, it didn't have the, the length of extinction that we had in the Philippines. So it was only like two or three generations that it was, when it was off the radar and then came back into existence. Huh. Okay. Uh, but the Samoans had they've had a very unbroken, very strong tattooing tradition. I would see some of the Samoan tattooing there. And I, I thought to myself, Ooh, I like that. But, uh, I didn't want to wear something that wasn't mine. You know, it would have been nothing to go and get a, you know, quasi Polynesian, you know, tattoo from a tattoo artist, but I wanted to make sure that I didn't appropriate anything. And so I began to do more research on that. And, uh, at the time, I had no intentions of becoming a tattooist. I just wanted to get tattooed. And I didn't get my first tattoo until I think it was 34. And I'm 50 now. Um, so, I, and as a good Mormon, I'm not supposed to get tattooed. Right. And, you know, had to do some mental gymnastics with that, you know, and always got quoted Leviticus, you know, about, you know, don't put any marks in your skin for the, for the dead or any print, any marks upon you. And, you know, I, I would read that and like, okay, that makes sense. But they're also forbidding me to, from eating pork and any good Filipino is totally guilt, guilty of that. Uh, crustaceans, that's forbidden. <laughs> love lobster, love shrimp, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of that is you're just cherry picking throughout the Bible. Uh, what you want to yeah. <laughs> practice and what you don't, especially Old Testament stuff. But uh, anyway, um, I um, I had no intention of doing that because that would be very sinful rather than something I could repent of later. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, don't ask permission, you know, do it and then ask for forgiveness. Right, right, right. But, my, ki- um, my kids but, know that lesson very well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I, uh, you know, I just started doing research and slowly kind of trailed down, you know, what designs belong to what regions of the Philippines. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually what got, got some marks made on my leg uh, from a Samoan practitioner. And at the time, I really had no intention of, of doing the work. I just liked getting it. And... I was writing this manuscript about Filipino tattoos and the, the tofuma that tattooed my, my leg, my first tattoo, which goes from my knee to my hip. His name is Sua uh, Suluwape Aleava'a, uh, also known as Patela Suluwape. 
But Sula, um, I approached him when he was here in Las Vegas about coming and observing because uh, I wanted to learn more about the actual process of tattooing and not being able to go back home at that time and meet Huang Od, our eldest practitioner in the Philippines. I went and I learned with him. Uh, so I asked him if I could come in and observe. And he said, sure, you know, do you have a, a lava lava? And I said, yeah, that's a, you know, basically a sarong. And so I showed up the next day with my notepad, thinking I could just sit on the mat and watch and, you know, observe. And instead, he put me to work stretching the skin. And that's a really important job because it allows the practitioner to use the tools in the most less, in the least traumatic way possible upon the skin. So the tool can enter and exit the skin cleanly without getting snagged in there. And even when you're using a tattoo machine, the tattooist will hold the skin apart, will pull the skin apart with his thumb and forefinger while he's tattooing with the other hand. In hand tap tattooing, we're using both hands to do that. Right. And so you need someone else to do it. So I, I always started stretching with the Samoans whenever I had the opportunity and found, you know, these guys have a lot of the same motifs as we do. And collecting their understanding of, of what that meant. And I was very fortunate that they were very generous in sharing uh, that with me. And so, you know, I got that under my belt. And then I started thinking, well, I wonder how these tools worked and how they were made. So I started making these old uh, tools. And I would show them to Sua and he'll, oh, this is a good tool. When do you, when do you think you want to start practicing? And I'm like, oh, I don't want to practice. I'm a, you know, in my head, I'm thinking I'm a good Mormon boy, kind of. I, I, can't, ta- I can't tattoo. So anyway, I, I made all these tools and I unwillingly or not consciously knowing I was going through what would normally be the steps of apprenticeship. You stretch, you learn about the, the designs and the lore, you start making tools and eventually you start tattooing. And uh, so, you know, time went on. I published the book. My Hawaiian mentor, Kione Nunes, he, he says to me, so when are you going to start practicing? You've got this book out. You've got to put it in the practice. Like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. You know, I've done my responsibility. I've collected all this information, given it to my people. You know, it's a good foundational reference. I'm done. But... Uh, then my dad got cancer and uh, he, uh, he called me up one day and says, you know, it's bad, Lane. I uh, got mesothelioma, and, uh, which is pretty much a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And not a lot of people recover from it. And so uh, I went down to Arizona where he was living and uh, took him to his treatments and stuff like that. And they wanted to do radiation for him to try and prolong his life. And they, and they put all these marks on his body where the, the computer could aim and target and, and zap him in the hopes of, you know, slowing down the, the disease. And they said, you know, Mr. Wilkin, we'd like to tattoo these marks on you because it'll, that way we don't have to do the measurements every time. Right. So they put Band-Aids over these uh, targets on his body. And he said, well, I'll go home and I'll think about it. And so we were talking. He said, you know what, Lane, they want to tattoo these radiation targets on me, but I don't want a man I don't know with a machine I don't know touching my body. You've been studying tattooing all these years. You tattoo these marks on me. And uh, I, I couldn't say no to him. Hmm. You know? So um, I, got a, I got a wooden dowel. I drilled a hole in it. I picked a lemon thorn from my mother's tree pushed it through that hole, got some India ink, and uh, my brother stretched the skin, and we tattooed those radiation targets on my dad. And those were the first tattoos I did. Wow. My dad never got the radiation treatment. He ended up passing. And uh, I, uh, I told some of my friends about my experience tattooing my dad and if Filipinos are good at anything, it's gossiping. And <laughs> the, the coconut wireless is real. So I, uh, I, pretty soon I had people asking. And, uh, and uh, they knew that I could do the old technique. They knew that I knew the, the ritual aspect of it. And so I began doing it for the community. And 
pretty soon, you know, here I am. I, I used to be a teacher and and before long, uh, my my tattooing work was in terms of income was eclipsing what I was making as a teacher. And my wife wanted to go back to school and she says, well, and I was kind of doing some, you know, financial juggling, like, well, if I tattoo a couple weekends out of the month and I take these trips, I can stay home with the kids while you fin while you go back to school. And so that's what we did. I quit uh, working for the school district and began tattooing just part time. And we just tightened up our belts and and made it work. But once my wife got done with school, I began traveling a lot more. And it's been years later now. And here I am uh, doing something I never intended to do. And it's and I and I tell my apprentices this. I I I did not really start enjoying tattooing until the last couple of years. Uh, before it was like, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap! Don't make a mistake. Don't right. screw up, Lane. <laughs> you know, this is forever. This is permanent. <laughs> but uh, you know, I've come to a point in the practice where I really enjoy doing it, and I see the transformation that happens with people, the empowerment that comes with it. And I've had my own experience with that. Um, back in 2015, uh, this. Filipino dance troupe was invited to participate in the opening ceremonies for the Merry Monarch in Hawaii, which is like a, it is the hula festival. It's like the hula Olympics in Hawaii and businesses will shut down so they can watch it and stuff like that. Wow. So I got, I got invited by this dance, this Filipino dance troupe to come and do opening protocols and prayers for them at the Merry Monarch. And, you know, this, the stadium held like 10,000 people. This is televised throughout the islands. And, and I'm wearing basically a loincloth and, uh, and a top, you know, my butt cheeks are out in the air. And so, you know, I got, I got into shape. I did my squats and <laughs> that kind of thing. But, uh, I was very nervous about, uh, doing the prayers and on television and stuff like that. And, uh, growing up in the States, my language isn't very, it is not far from pro perfect. And so, you know, I'm backstage, I'm trying to go through what I need to say and make sure that I pronounce things correctly. And, and then they called me up, you, you're up Lane. get up there and, and do your prayers. And I was so nervous, John, I was walking up that ramp to that stage and had my head down and I saw on my legs these tattoos that represent the multiplicity of my ancestors. And I thought to myself, if my ancestors are with me, then who am I to be afraid? Who am I to be nervous? I am doing their work. And I got up there, I, ch I did the chants and prayers, and I was so fierce, so strong, that they could hear me all the way in the back of that stadium. And people were coming up to me afterwards and they were saying, were you miked? And I'm like, no, I wasn't. And if you ever see videos of me doing that, I look, I look very strong, very powerful. But right up until that point, I was trembling in my G-string. <laughs> but I've seen that transformation happen for so many people. More than 50% of the people I work on are women. And to see the empowerment that happens to them, the transformation that happens with them after receiving these ancestral marks, it's, it's palatable. You, you can't rationalize it away. I suppose if you tried hard enough, you could, you could do that. Right. But it's, we, it's, it's happened over and over again. And, and then there were there's aspects that we've discovered since the publication of my books uh, that show that there was an understanding of Chinese medicine with like acupuncture points and things like that, meridian lines in the body that the tattoos go over, that, that they actually follow the meridian lines on the body. Huh. And so I started researching that. Okay, what does this particular design on this location of the body do according to Chinese medicine? And one of the ones that we've discovered is, uh, is fertility and uh, discovered that by accident. Did these fertility tattoos that, you know, at the, uh, in the past, I just thought there's some kind of mystical aspect of it. But no, it's rooted in an understanding of Chinese medicine. 
which was probably not necessarily may have may or may not have been uh, from a Chinese uh, teaching or so, but a similar understanding. Uh, the same with Ayurvedic tradition in in India, uh, with their healing practices and chakras and things like that. And so I had uh, you know again through the rumor mill, uh, Lane can can give you fertility tattoos and it'll help you you know with your fertility. <laughs> Tattoos and fire. That's yeah, all you need. Fire and fire and tattoos. That's all you need. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we we were for a hot minute just doing tattoo fertility tattoos like they were on the clearance rack. I mean, wow. But uh, and with the women, I had this forty-one-year-old woman from Vancouver uh, get fertility marks. She was already premenopausal, and uh, if she did conceive, uh, she would miscarry. And so me and one of my apprentices, we flew up. We did some of the markings on her. A couple months later, she calls me up. Hey, Lane, I'm pregnant. Wow. And, uh, wow. and again, the rumor mill goes around, and I'm getting requests for fertility tattoos. But the, the great thing about that it was is what we, could, we repeated the experiment several times. And so I know that, you know, we know that from archaeological evidence that the tattooing and tradition in the Philippines is, is around at least from the archaeological record, around 4,000 years old, but probably most likely older. That's just what we've discovered in terms of artifacts. Right. And so we've literally had thousands of years to explore this practice, to refine it, to, to, to test it. And, uh, and I knew that we did medicinal tattooing when I published Filipino Tattoos Ancient to Modern, but I did not know that it was rooted in something that was uh, much deeper than just mysticism. So if you're, if, you're, if you're familiar with acupuncture, basically the acupuncture is inserting a very thin needle that's made out of metal into the skin over an acupuncture point, and then they stimulate that point with the, their chi or the electromagnetic field of their body. And because the needle is metal, it's a conductor. So they will stimulate it to add or release energy, etc. Now, if I tattoo a black dot over that acupuncture point, every time that dot is exposed to sunlight or any kind of light, uh, it's absorbing energy, just like a black car in the sun gets hotter than a white car because it absorbs the energy. Right. And so there's, there, there's this application of the tattoos that we're still trying to explore and understand. Again, it's not just marks for decoration. It's not marks of rank or position in, in culture or society or even just the spiritual beliefs that are associated with it, it's something deeper. It's, there's all these aspects and nuances that come out in it. Uh, one of the things that I've recently been you know, thinking about is uh, the geometry that is, it, that is in the tattooing themselves. We have hexagons and pentagons and uh, different things, and they're done in numerics, uh, the specific, specific numerics a lot of the time. So there's another aspect that we still are doing research on and it would be arrogant for me to you know even though i've been looking into this studying this for 30 years now it would be arrogant of me to say i know everything about it because you know that's literally thousands of years of <laughs> right tradition so you know, i'm hoping that my apprentices and and some of the other people you know pick up the torch so to speak and and, and help with the research yeah I, I you know i like most people are sort of familiar with the the sort of stereotype of the of the artistic Polynesian um, Austronesian tattooing, right? Yeah. But I I wouldn't know, you know, looking at, at the depiction of Maui and Moana, I would I wouldn't know whether or not there was any significance to it, or right, or if it's at all at all accurate. At, on that point, is is there anything? You know, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting about that movie, um, and, and you know, I know I know it's it's a Disney movie, whatever, but that you know when Maui's tattoos kind of come to life they they tell a story and I, and I was thinking about the, that aspect of the um, the tattooing practice that you know obviously so much of these cultural traditions are passed down orally and there's no necessarily written tradition but the kind of is right in the in the form of tattooing right are are there stories to be to be told and discovered within the tattoos are how 
how specific are they um, in, in your in your uncovering uh, as opposed to just sort of um, maybe ritualistic or um, symbolic? Is, is there is there a narrative element to the tattoos as well? Oh, oh definitely. Um, so people will say, oh, this is, you know, the, the, the tattoos tell stories. But, you know, how they depict that in Moana is very explicit, right. whereas... Right. Uh, <laughs> The actual, they don't come to life. <laughs> no, no. As much as people wish that would happen, not really. So it, there is a form of literacy when it comes to our tattoos in the Pacific. Um, and that's where a lot of tattoo artists get tripped up because they'll tattoo something thinking, oh, that's what this means. And they get the superficial understanding of what those designs mean. And they don't, oh, this represents this or this represents, you know, your generosity or this represents family, but how does it represent family? What type of family does it represent? So there's these, it's it's not like a word for word kind of translation, it's more conceptual. And certain designs uh, can marry into each other and complement each other or add to their meaning and others are contradictory. And I see that a lot sometimes in the modern application of our tattoos. Like I, re- I ran into this guy in, in Las Vegas years ago and I recognized his tattoos on his arm. And this dude was a Filipino, he's almost six feet tall, roided out, you know, just uber macho. You know, I, I approached him and I said, I recognize your tattoos are, are from the Philippines. And he goes, oh, yeah, this you know represents my pride in, in my culture and everything. And I'm like, oh. I said, where, where, who did the, who did those marks or where did you get the designs from? He says, well, I, I found it in this, uh, this book about tribal tattoos. It mentioned that these are from the Philippines. So I wanted to rip my culture. And I did not have the heart to tell him that those were a Manobo woman's breast tattoos oh, no. that he had on the shoulder. Oh, no. And I know brother isn't going to be breastfeeding anytime soon. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, that kind of misinformation that happens, unfortunately, with tattoo artists, because it's a lot like the telephone game. Things get passed around and eventually they lose their meaning or it's so distorted that they don't even know what it means anymore, really. And so there's a, there's a literacy to the tattoos. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them function to remember oral history. And so some of those foundational tattoos I prefer to do first, but because of the restrictions with Western culture and and even corporate culture, visible tattoos are not always accepted. And so sometimes I will do an alternative placement if that is an issue and if it's culturally appropriate for that person to have it somewhere else. But a lot of them are mnemonic devices to remember oral history. And you wouldn't know that uh, if it was just, oh, yeah, this is Maui's fish hook. But hmm. in that aspect, you know, that's what's important is context. And so there's a, a lot of design there. We actually have quite a few motifs that go back to Lumawi or Maui in our tattooing tradition of the Philippines. But they're, they don't look like what Maui Moana has on his body. Those are those tattoos are more like uh, modern Polynesian tattooing. Right. Uh, not, they're not quite traditional. Before we go, uh, what's next for you? What what's another book at some point? Yeah, well, I have a I have a few books in the okay. <laughs> Great. As, as the as the tattooing practices has accelerated, I can't wait for some of my apprentices to do the work because it'll take the pressure off of me. Sure, so I can have more time to write. But I am writing. I started out writing about uh, one of Maui's progenitors. Uh, who's commonly known throughout the Pacific as Tangaloa. Um, and he is also an ancient navigator. And uh, I started a manuscript for him, and I got about 70 pages into it, and then I felt like I needed to switch to Maui instead. So I need to go back and finish that manuscript. That's something I'm trying to work on right now. Um, and it'll be kind of laid out similar to the Forgotten Children of Maui, but it'll be focused on that and that particular ancestor, uh, who is commonly thought of as a creator god or the god of the ocean, uh, worshipped by navigators and fishermen. Uh, but really, he is another progenitor. And so I will be uh, focusing on him. And then... Uh, I have some other other things in the works, but I can't haven't quite fleshed those out yet. 
years ago, uh, I had taken everything I had collected on the commonalities throughout the Pacific with the focus on the Philippines. Uh, I had submitted that large opus to uh, Bishop Museum Press. They kept my manuscript for over a year when they were done reviewing it with their scholars, didn't feel comfortable publishing it uh, because privately they told me that it was too avant-garde and there was no precedent for it. And you know how things are in Western academia is it's got to be documented. Everything has to be documented. Uh, and I'm pulling from a lot of oral tradition. And so, uh, but they encouraged me to take chapters out of that opus and flesh them out into individual books. And that's what Filipino tattoos, ancient to modern was. That's what Forgotten Children of Maui was. There were chapters out of that opus. So there were several chapters that that could be turned into individual books. Uh, but the one on Tangaloa is, is my next focus. So hopefully I'll have that done maybe by 2021. <laughs> <laughs> The next time someone can go to a bookstore, uh, it'll it'll be there. This rate. <laughs> uh, where can people find you on the uh, cyber world? Uh, I'm on Instagram. Look for Lane Wilkin. Uh, you can find my author page on Amazon and my books on Amazon. And then you can also visit me at my my website, lanewilkin.com, um, and find information about me or my books or where I'm going to be speaking or traveling to. That's all on my website. Well, Elaine, it's been a real joy to talk to you, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, mahalo. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for having me on your podcast. This was a, a, a pleasure. And if you want to have me on again, I'm happy to come back home. I, <laughs> I can just about guarantee I'll take you up on that. Right on. Thanks. Sa hukay